Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books. We are an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Um, if you are not familiar with us, we highly recommend checking out our website, skylightbooks.com. Um, if you're in the LA area, we are open right now for in-store shopping from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., weekdays and 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. weekends if you wear a mask and social distance and sanitize your hands. Um, I am going to plug once again uh, early, early holiday shopping. Um, I don't know if any of you are paying attention to the news here in LA County, but we're having some new coronavirus restrictions going into effect in the last couple of days. Um, so we just want to make sure that uh, you get out there and do your holiday shopping while it's safe. Um, and we do offer curbside pickup as well. Um, so if you want to do some contactless shopping, we're happy to um, just give you those books uh, in the safest way possible. And we can also ship them to you anywhere in the U.S. So never fear, we've got all of your book needs covered. All right. So today on the podcast, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I, I love this series and we've done a couple of events for these books over the years. Um, and there's a new a new entry in the series. Um, this is the Noir, the City Noir series by Akashic Books. And this newest one is Acre Noir, um, which is edited by Nanama Dankwa. She's gonna be here today in conversation with Aniwa Bwachi. Nanama Dankwa was born in Accra, Ghana and raised in the United States. She is the author of the memoir, Willow Weep For Me, A Black Woman's Journey Through Depression, and the editor of three anthologies, Becoming American, Shaking the Tree, and The Black Body. Her essays, fiction, and poetry have been widely anthologized, and she has written for numerous magazines, journals, and newspapers, including Essence, Allure, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and The Los Angeles Times. During her tenure as an international speechwriter for the president of Ghana, the addresses she penned were delivered at the United Nations General Assembly, the African Union, the Palace of Westminster, the University of Oxford, and Harvard University. She has taught at Otis College of Arts and Sciences, Antioch University, Los Angeles, and the University of Ghana, Legon. She splits her time between Accra and Los Angeles and has one daughter, the actress and writer Karama Dankwa. A true Renaissance woman, Aniwa Buachi is a Ghanaian British award-winning actress, filmmaker, and writer. A recipient of the Alan Bates Award and the New York International Film Festival Award, she has a wealth of experience in TV, film, radio, and stage. 
She has worked extensively on stages in London and internationally, performing at world prominent theaters such as the Public Theater, the Old Vic, Young Vic, and the National Theater of Ghana. A woman of many talents, she has expanded her passion for storytelling to her writing. This year, she was commissioned by BAFTA-nominated British production company Can Do Arts to write, direct, and produce short films. Proud of her Ghanaian British heritage, her work continually explores the complicated relationship between Africa and Great Britain. She is the female voice heard reading the Accra Noir audiobook. All right. So Nanama and Aniwa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm delighted to have you. Thank, Thank you for having us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us. <laughs> All right. So Nanama, are you going to start us off with a, a little bit of a reading from the introduction? Sure, I would love that. Um, the uh, title of the introduction is Cry Your Own Cry. And I'm only going to read um, uh, a page or two. Okay. Accra is the perfect setting for noir fiction. The telling of such tales, ones involving or suggesting death, with a protagonist who is flawed or devious, driven by either a self-serving motive or one of the seven deadly sins, is woven into the fabric of the city's everyday life. Allow me to explain. Accra is a city that stands at the center of the world. Of course, this is technically untrue. The center of the world is at the meeting point of those two imaginary lines that divide the globe into hemispheres, separating north from south and east from west, the equator and the prime meridian. Accra is not quite the center of the world, but remarkably close. Those few degrees of distance notwithstanding, Accra has long served as the meeting point of East and West, North and South, as a cultural crossroads. Accra is one of the most well-known cities in Africa. It's the capital of Ghana, which in 1957 became the first Sub-Saharan, read, Black, nation to gain independence from colonialism. But the city and all its globalism predates the nation. Prior to becoming a sovereign land, the area now known as Ghana was the Gold Coast, a British colony formed in 1867. 10 years later, Accra was installed as its capital. For nearly a century, in addition to being a political and financial center, the city was a major hub of trade. People came from Europe and other African nations to trade everything from gold and salt to guns and slaves. Accra is more than just a capital city. It is a microcosm of Ghana. It is a virtual map of the nation's soul a complex geographical display of its indigenous presence, the colonial imposition, declarations of freedom, followed by coups d'etat, decades of dictatorship, and then finally a steady march forward into a promising future. There is a story in every name, be it of a building or a neighborhood, such as Christiansborg Castle, Jamestown, Cantonments, Flagstaff House. Many roads and landmarks are dedicated to the architects of independence, not just Kwame Nkrumah, J.B. Dankwa, 
William Oferiata, Edward Akufado, Ebenezer Akwaje, and Emmanuel Obechebilamti, the six men who are recognized as Ghana's founding fathers, but other leaders as well, including those of the non-aligned movement like Egypt's Gamel Abdel Nasser, India's Jawaharlal <laughs> Can I say that again? <laughs> okay. Uh, I messed up on this every time I was recording it too. Okay. Many roads and landmarks are dedicated to the architects of independence, not just Kwame Nkrumah, J.B. Dankwa, William Oferiata, Edward Akufado, Ebenezer Akwaje, and Emmanuel Obechebilamti, the six men who are recognized as Ghana's founding fathers, but other leaders as well, including those of the non-aligned movement, like Egypt's Gamel Abdel Nasser, India's Jawaharlal Nauru, and Yugoslavia's Joseph Braz Tito. Given that Ghana's Independence Day is March 6th, one might wonder why there is a street named 28th February, situated right by Black Star Square and Independence Arch. It commemorates the Accra riots, which began on that date in 1948 and continued for five days in response to the deaths of three protesters, ex-servicemen at the hands of the colonial police. The riots were considered a clarion call for freedom. It makes sense then that 28th February Road leads directly to the Monuments of Liberty. Inside Black Star Square, upon declaring Ghana a free nation, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, the first president, issued another clarion call. Our independence is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of Africa. This is not intended to be a history lesson, though history is perhaps the most straightforward way to explain how multifaceted the city is, how everything in and about it holds meaning and is sending a message. When in Accra, one learns quickly to look beyond the literal. It is not enough to consider a text. One must also consider the context, beware of a pretext and search for a subtext. Earlier, I likened Accra to a map. As with most maps, there exists a legend through which one can decode any and all aspects of the place. Legends are merely definitions, commentaries. Accra is a city of storytellers, people who speak and live and love in parables and aphorisms and proverbs. Sprawled on the back windows of taxis and truck draws, the minivans that are used for unregulated public transportation, are sayings such as, cry your own cry, every day for thief, one day for master, jealousy will kill you, haste not in life, and so on. Thank you for that reading. What a great introduction. Thank you. All right, so um, Aniwa and Nanama, I think I'm gonna hand it over to the two of you to 
jump into a conversation and then maybe later we'll hear a little bit from Nanama's story. Oh, that'd be wonderful because Aniwa is the voice that for those who decide to buy the book in audio, she is the voice of many of the stories. Yes, and it was an absolute honor to voice Akra Noa. Um, as Nanama has read in the introduction, Accra is such a vibrant city with so many different levels to it. And it's just such a joy to be part of something which enables people that may not be familiar with Accra to get a glimpse of it in a noir setting. Absolutely. I think our listeners are going to love being taken away, especially now, <laughs> now that they can't leave their houses. Yeah. <laughs> a way to journey. Yes, yes. A way to journey. And a way to journey in a way that is very unique and refreshing as well. This book definitely shows a different side to Accra, which I find myself is very interesting as someone who has been to Accra many times. I, this was a new discovery to me when I was reading this book. The stories are absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. So actually, on that note, <laughs> So, um, so Nanama, thank you so much for uh, giving me this opportunity to talk with you and thanks to Skylight Books as well. Um, as I just mentioned, this book took me on a journey through Accra in a different way than what I'm used to as someone who's familiar with the city. And I find that most books that take place in uh, the Western world, for example, give you the scope to express many levels of Western life. Um, with this book, it is very interesting because it shows you different levels of um, Ghanaian life. Did you find it difficult to find stories and also to write a story which goes beyond the jovial spirit or stereotype of what people see African people to be like or what people see Ghanaian people to be like? That's a really great question, especially because, as you know, with Ghana, you know, when you look up all the tour books, um, the travel books, they may as well have the natives are friendly. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. We have that sort of reputation of being very friendly, right? From the, oh, Aquaba, as soon as you right. land. Um, I thought that, I thought that the noir part of it took care of that. I mean, because noir, you know, you start with a dead body. So at some point, that takes away the pretense of, of, you know, kindness because somebody done it. Somebody killed somebody. So, you know, going backwards from there is who did it and why. And I think that the who and the why was especially important in this book, as, as it is in all noir books, but because it's a crop, for me, it was really interesting because that gives the writer the opportunity to show aspects of the culture. And also um, Akashic has this brilliant um, uh, uh, platform or not platform, that's not the word I'm looking for, but this, this brilliant you know, way that they have, each of the noir books have, are broken up into neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So you get the different neighborhoods also, because as we know, things change by neighborhood. Yes. So I love that because 
then you get these neighborhoods that people think are oh so posh or oh so whatever, and then there's a murder there. So we show how everybody is culpable in crime. And you it know? also takes the reader on a journey on different parts of our crime because yeah. for the most part, um, people tend to center around, uh, you know, the president square in Accra, like that area in particular, because it's very kind of touristy. You have um, the castle there, um, you have the beach very close by as well. So mm -hmm. it took me on a journey to places in Accra that I've never even set foot into, which as soon as I can get back, I'm gonna definitely be exploring and trying to find, you know, some kind of crime story possibly <laughs> that I can break in my head. Like I'm gonna be like, pretend to be a detective in my own right. Um, if you look too hard for the crime, it might come find you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good will and hopefully it doesn't. But you started the book with a quote from J.B. Dankwa. Can you tell, tell us why you decided on that particular quote? Um, I, the quote is, um, they broke the sheds and built a town which grew stronger as city or state. The city advanced as Accra has shown and the infant town conquered its fate. Um, I think that for me, it, it just really talks about the, um, the longevity of Accra, of Accra and the staying power. Mm. You know, its fate was to be just this capital town of a colonial place. And now it's this international capital almost you know um you know there there are there are other across all throughout the world you know all throughout africa certainly there's other cities that are named after Accra. Accra was the original one so i liked that i liked the fact that the quote says oh you know there's history here but I also chose the quote because J.B. Dankwa is one of the founding fathers. He's one of the big six, um, one of the people who fought uh, to gain independence for, um, for Ghana, the country we now know as Ghana. And he's also my grandfather. So it was a way of, um, it, it was an homage, I guess. It was a tip of the, tip of the hat, so. The three, the three ended up kind of coming together for me. Fantastic. You, you, you mentioned that your grandfather was one of the founding fathers of um, Ghana. And it's very interesting because you also place in the book that Accra is a city that stands at the center of the world. Of course, that's technically untrue. I found that a powerful statement, especially as a Ghanaian Brit. Um, and for anyone that hasn't, doesn't know anything about Ghana, I mean, uh, for example, I was watching, you know, The Crown as everyone does now. And there was a point where um, Queen Elizabeth is dancing. dancing with Kwame Nkrumah and the crown kind of like skirts over that. Um, obviously due to time, they did, couldn't see the show, the whole story, but what's powerful about that statement of when in Accra is a city that stands at the center of the world, of course that's technically untrue, is that, you know, I personally believe that Accra has done a lot for the Western world. Would you like to elaborate how you believe um, Accra pulls focus from the rest of the world? Well, I mean, 
I think that we've always, um, Kwame Nkrumah is the, he's one of the founding fathers. He's one of the big six. And he's also the first uh, president of, um, of Ghana. Um, and he, he has a very strong relationship. You know, he went to, he went to school in the United States. And so a lot of Ghana's independence really parallels with a lot of um, the United States' uh, Black Power movement and civil rights movement. And so there's that. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a joke that during the independence um, uh, celebration, when Ghana was becoming free, where, you know, Martin Luther King was there. I mean, there, there were a bunch of people who came to witness, you know, um, the, the turning of the clock and Ghana becoming a free nation. And one of the people was Richard Nixon, who at the time was a vice president. And he went to someone, a, a, a black couple and said, so how does it feel to be free? And they're like, we wouldn't know. We're from Alabama. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, and I love that. And I love the fact that, you know, you've got, gone so, so much of Ghanaian culture is imported, you know, throughout the rest of the world. You've got, you've got the Adinkra symbols, yes. which, you know, you see in jewelry, you see in clothing, you see, you know, I, I often see it in television shows and then they've completely misrepresented it, you know. They'll say, this is the such and such symbol. And I'm like, no, it's not, but that's okay. Well, um, what they tend to do as well a lot of the time, and you can always tell when someone hasn't put in the effort to um, research, they will place um, cloth that is inherently Ghanaian on someone and say this is set in Uganda and for all the Ghanaians they're like that's not a Ugandan cloth at all <laughs> and for the Ugandans too who've, who've got their own culture um, exactly. so you know you've got that you've got uh kente cloth which most um black Americans who are graduating generally also have a small yeah. you know stole that is Kente to represent um, their, their tie to Africa. And also the Congressional Black Caucus, you know, they use Kente cloth. Um, we've given the world a lot in terms of chocolate. We're one of the top producers. If, if not number one, number two, we go back and forth with Cote d'Ivoire of chocolate, um, whether or not you're eating it not knowing that it's Ghanaian, it still is. You know, it yeah. might end up in Switzerland and then get packaged somehow. But then also, you know, there are what the, the, the names, a lot of African Americans that rename themselves, they choose Ghanaian names, um, whether it's uh, Abna or uh, Equia or Ya or Akosua or Ajua. And also with the men, um, Kofi, Kwabana, you know, those are all Ghanaian names. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot when you look at the fact that Africa has 54 nations. And then when you look at how much the world knows of quote unquote African culture, that the majority of it is from Ghana. Yeah, yeah. 
is it is in fact very um, and also it being known formally as the gold coast it of course provided a lot of the world with gold and and as someone who is from the uk i can honestly tell you that i think in the crown jewels there's something from ghana in the crown jewels as well i'm so, sure there is there's a little bit from everything and so yes yeah, <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to be respectful as i speak well you know we're all asking for it back all these african countries are asking for everything in the british museum back um so hopefully we will get our stuff back again um so you in the introduction i love i love this line i love it so much you say when in accra one learns quickly to look beyond literal it's not enough to consider text one must also consider the context beware of a pretext and search for a subtext right yes I, when I read that, I, it was like almost, it's a proverb to me. I saw it to be in some sense a proverb. Um, and I saw it to be uh, like in terms of Accra, do you feel, do you see Accra as a symbolization of a multitude of, of proverbs? There's, I feel like there's always something to learn in Accra. Yes. I mean, people speak in parables. People, mm -hmm. people you know, um, everything is a proverb from the things that people are wearing, the symbols that people are wearing, the cloth has a name and there's always some sort of proverb and then, you know, people actually speak in it. And then there is um, also, you know, the transportation, all the taxis and the truck draws, they have that. The store, the little, the little roadside stores, mm -hmm. they also have, some of them are named after Proverbs, some of them are named after religious, um, religious tenets or religious sayings. So um, a lot of times, yes. And, and sometimes, you know, it can be a pretext. Sometimes it can be a way to lure somebody into something. <laughs> Sometimes, and then in terms of subtext, you know, somebody tells you something, you have to understand why. So there's a subtext to it. So there's, it's just, it's not straightforward. And I think people, I think people from the West come to places like Ghana and they expect it to be very, very simple, very basic, very surface, you know. And when I was teaching, I had to explain to my students, don't you go out there and get in trouble? Because they thought it was so quaint and so, you know, and, you know, and one of my students found himself in the middle of a drug deal and didn't understand that that's what was happening. <laughs> you know? Akras is very, but I think what people fail to understand is that it's seen in the, I don't, I don't hate the word third world because I don't see it as a third world, but it's seen as in the progressive world, shall I say. And people don't realise that it's a bustling city. It functions just like any other city. But for me, it's more exciting because you don't know what to expect. You know, you, you have to be on your toes. And in the same breath that Ghanaians are very jovial, um, 
they're they're very jovial but they're all also people that are willing to look for the opportunity when you don't see it you know so you have to be you you just have to be on your wares like you would be in new york city anywhere yeah yeah major city um where people are lovely and nice too sometimes or not i mean every city has its own personality you know you go from los angeles to new york i sometimes forget and i'll go from los angeles where everyone's like oh hello oh don't worry oh have a good day to new york where they're like move it along <laughs> you know <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and so then i'm just like oh oh okay and then i'm like and I was like, moving along, like I'm yeah. trying to say hello and everybody's like in a rush and, you know, but then I also find that Los Angeles is very superficial in the sense that I can't, when I meet people, they're lovely and they're very sort of almost ethereal and they're like, hi, how are you? And yeah. this is so wonderful. Oh, have a blessed day. And you don't get to know them at all. And if you want to connect with them, they give you 55 phone numbers, all of which will never ever reach them. Yeah, and, exactly. in, and in New York, people can be quite you know, abrasive, quite rude. But then when you do connect with them, it's forever. That, and that's the same with London. London's very much like that, it's time is money. Um, you kind of have to be very upfront as to what you want from someone. And once they know that, if they can help you, they'll help you very swiftly and you, they move on. But they'll be very loyal to you. Once you connect with someone in London, they're with you forever. And I kind of feel in some sense, um, people in Accra, they're much more grounded I feel, I feel whenever I'm there, um, I connect to people and, and they're curious as to how life is like outside Accra. I think in recent times now, when I go, they're, they're curious to know about what life is like outside Accra, but no one has this burning ambition to step into the West to um, progress. Everyone's willing to stay back in Ghana now and all travel to other the other 54, 53 other countries in in Ghana, I mean in Africa, to um, forward their careers. So I think Accra Noir is coming out, out at a very exciting time because anyone who reads the book and is excited about Ghana when the pandemic is hopefully over, they decide to go and visit Ghana. I think they're gonna be. Um, they're going to be exposed to a Ghana that is so exciting and entrepreneurial. And yeah, it's, it's an amazing time right now uh, for amazing Ghana place. and a lot of countries in Africa. Yeah. It's an amazing place. So, stories really give light to, um, you know, they give light to not just the underside, but also what's, what's happening. Because I feel like a lot of these countries, right, um, you know, money is an issue, but mm -hmm. money is an issue here too. I mean, you see the tent cities all over and, you know, and all throughout, like you go to Portland and you see the level of homelessness, you, you go to Los Angeles. So a lot of relationships will be transactional because there are people who have not quite gotten to the point where they're intense outside. They're trying to not get there. And so they've got their hustle on. And that's something that, this um that this this book also uh highlights is the fact that economy drives crime sometimes when 
when scales are unbalanced, when some have significantly more mm -hmm. and want to live alongside people and not give them anything and think that they can live with close to nothing. Yeah. You know? And I think that's something that every society has to look at, particularly with this pandemic. Oh, especially within this pandemic. I think in Ghana, like you said, everyone's on a hustle. There's not one person that I know in Ghana that is lazy or not doing anything. Everybody's always working and doing something. And at times I get very offended by the way the West speaks about Africa. Because I think what's exposed, particularly in the States, what's exposed about Africa is always some kind of image of where people are trying to get aid from the States. I've, I've traveled a number of places and I can honestly say that I believe the States is in a much more dire situation in comparison to other countries that are seen as progressive or third world. Like you said, there's so many tents all over Los Angeles and Los Angeles, California is one of the richest states in America. So um, it's questionable as to, you know, where, where the funds go. But again, this is a very capitalist environment. I grew up in a very capitalist stroke kind of semi-socialist environment. So hopefully that will change <laughs> with, the, with the 2021 and, you know, whatever's happening politically, which I shall not speak about any further. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> this is about um, Accra. Um, but saying that, all the stories, they do show many different sides and many different hustles that each person has to go through to obtain a certain standard of life in Accra. Mm -hmm. But they also, there's a number of, um, there's elements in each story where, to be honest, it did make me chuckle a little bit. There will be points where I read a story and I laugh, even though I'm reading a crime story. And so I'm so intrigued as to, as to what was the brief you gave to your writers? What was the, what brief you gave yourself and other writers for Accra Noir to get such beautiful, diverse, unique stories? I actually just allowed them to choose a neighborhood. And then, what I told them was exactly what I just read in the introduction, which is it has to be a classic noir story, which is one where you've got a character who is almost a loser, who almost sort of shoots himself in the foot or shoots herself in the foot, you know, um, because they want something and, you know, Perhaps it's their greed, or perhaps it's, you know, the fires on them. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of, you know, so these were, these are wonderful writers and thinkers. That's all I had to do to set them in motion. And, and they thought of some great, you know, some great stories. Um, Nana Equia Brew Hammond. Um, you know, her story about a young woman who, um, uh, they call them kayes, the, the girls that carry yeah. food at the market. So she finds ways to um, augment her, her money. Ajua Chung, who has a really, really unique story um, about a queen pin, uh, a, a drug queen pin and how that works out. 
Kwame Dawes, whose story is just, you know, it's just so amazing. It's really about um, a notion of justice and how one gets justice and how if you're in a position of power and you see the same crime again and again, when enough is enough, then you decide to get justice yourself. Yeah. Um, Kofi Blanks and Okansi, uh, who passed away, he was, he so wanted to be in this book. He passed away as it was being put together. Um, and he wrote of Jamestown, which is one of the oldest parts of the city. Um, and it's a real particular neighborhood. And he really brought that to life. And, um, you know, the, the story is about family and um, family clashes. Um, Billy McTurnan, uh, she wrote about a young woman who was looking to better her, her life coming from the quote unquote hinterland into Accra, the big city, and, you know, really having transactional relationships and doing what she could to further herself. And uh, the driver, Ernest Kwame Nkrumah Addo, uh, same thing. He, he writes about a driver and the ways in which um, we look through and we look past people, but yet at the same time, we relinquish a lot of control to these people. Yeah. And trust them to do right with the control that we give them. But what happens when they don't? Yeah. What happens when you sit in the car with a driver and, you know, all you see is the back of his head and then you're trusting him and you're yeah. relaxing. And what if you don't go where you're supposed to be going? Exactly. Um, Patrick Smith, uh, he wrote uh, The Situation. Mm-hmm. Is a lovely story and it's a story about deception on so many levels and um you know uh friends best friends betraying one another and um the femme fatale i guess uh and and saki which is this has got to be one of my favorite stories oh yes. and saki's intentional consequences where she just wrote, she just wrote a story that was very much like uh-huh okay it's just a woman who was like oh you're gonna do me like that i'll show you mm -hmm. <laughs> and, so, and that's what i mean with that story i was laughing my head off when i read it <laughs> it's it's very unfortunate circumstances but it's so funny yes yes and then one tree Agnete wrote um he wrote a an Afrofuturistic, mm -hmm. a sci-fi story, and I wrote a story, a love story, um, yeah. and it's intended to be a love story. I don't know. It's a very beautiful love story as well because it focuses on a relationship at the latter point in in the relationship's life. It's not like about young love. It's about love that it has been aged and defined, which we rarely ever get the opportunity to read stories about that that point in someone's life yeah no that's true um and then eileen eileen Nee cleric she she writes about the um the real underbelly which is about children being yeah. used for services mm -hmm. um you know to, to pleasure people 
Um, Anna Bossman, uh, she writes about mob justice. And so, you know, these, these stories are, these stories are really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled with how the book turned out. It's, it's a great range of stories. Um, the stories are well written and well executed, you know, and I think the stories are absolutely, they're definitely well written. <laughs> as soon as I read the book, I was telling everybody, you have to read this book. Everyone I know was saying, you have to read this book because it was so exciting. Each story is so different and you want to turn the page to see what happens in each of them. But the most beautiful thing that I found as a young woman is that a lot of the stories feature women and feature women as the protagonists. Um, I mean, how do you think women are seen and appreciated within Ghanaian society? Does it, does it uh, pay, is it parallel to how they're seen in the stories? I think, oh, in some stories, yes, in some stories, no. Um, I think women are at once um, held up on a pedestal and also at the same time, very, um, not reflected mm. you know i think that i think you know women run that society in many many ways um they certainly run the marketplace i mean mm -hmm. which, is, which which is the bulk of the economy of you know of that that nation um you know but then women also i don't know i mean a lot of women would 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 uh, argue with me when I say that they're not respected, but then I, you know, the way that I like to tell of what I was teaching there and my head of department told me, um, you know, he was introducing me at a meeting as, as a PhD and I said, oh, no, 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 I'm an MFA. It's a terminal degree, but, you know, and he said, Miss Donqua, you'll soon learn that the most important initials you'll ever have behind your name are MRS. And I was, I was horrified. But then I kept seeing that, you know, women would give me their business cards and it would have like their title, their job title, their everything. And then it would have MRS in brackets behind their name. Wow. Yes. And so, you know, it, it, it depends. I mean, I guess it's all about perspective, you know, because um, I, that's not for me, um, that's not something I would advertise on my business card. That's something that's more personal and private and not necessarily for the consumption of the public. So I would say that women in this, in this book are, displayed and portrayed in all the ways that they exist. Mm. They are definitely um, women who are engaged in uh, transactional relationships for sex. They are definitely women who are really working hard for their families. They are women who are devoted wives who want nothing more than their husband's happiness, you know? So, so there are, there are, I think that there, it's not just one. I don't think it's a monolith. 
And I think that's true in the country too. I think that there's a place for strong women. And I think that there's also a place for women who are traditional and more than traditional. Yeah. When you're speaking about, you mentioned that you taught that, and I'm, I'm very intrigued by your journey, um, which I, if it's okay, I would like to touch upon a little bit. Um, seeing as you know, you've, you've edited this book, you've also got a story in this book. So I think it's very important to understand your journey as a writer as well. Um, what inspired you to start writing? Because as you've mentioned, in Ghana, people are putting their marital status in brackets on a business card, <laughs> which is very clear indication that there's some traditional, um, some traditional kind of, uh, you know, way of being in, in Ghana. Okay, so for example, me being a woman of a certain age, I'm having aunties and everyone say to me, oh, why don't you have no children? All, all this kind of stuff, right? So I'm very intrigued to know how um, a wonderful woman, you know, began in Ghana and, and is a fantastic writer. What was your journey? What inspired you to start writing? I've always written. I, I literally have always been a reader and a writer. I can't remember a time when I was not. And I know that that's not, you know, I, I should come up with a better answer than that. I should <laughs> come up with like some kind of story about something that's happened to me. I believe though, um, if such a thing is possible, that it's in my blood. Um, you know, when you go to uh, Dankwa Circle, which is named after my grandfather, uh, Dr. J.B. Dankwa, and you look at the statue of him, he's resting his hand on a tall stack of books. Mm. You know, the, the books come up to his uh, waist and he's just sort of resting his hand on them. And, um, you know, uh, there's a memorial lecture series that the Academy of Arts and Sciences puts on every year called the Donqua series. And I just feel like it's just maybe in my blood. I don't know why. I have, I have been a writer since as long as I can remember. So what would you say is your signature as a writer? Signature? I don't know what that means. Like, what is your writing style? If, you, if, if there's such a way to describe it. I think that's for other people to describe. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I wouldn't dare. I, I wouldn't dare even attempt to, you know. Well, I can honestly say to myself. Well, I can honestly say that your your work is very emotive. It it feed, it does something to my soul deep down, oh, well, and I think that is a very hard task for any writer to achieve, to be honest. And so. I, I personally would describe your work to be very emotive and powerful and it makes one think afterwards, after reading your work, I, I, I keep thinking about my life in association with the characters. Um, so yeah, I, I would describe your work as that. I know it's quite tricky to ask a writer, how would you describe your own? I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, um, so, 
what is your describe your describe your where do you get your inspiration from ah i love that question um i get my inspiration from from life i'm always looking for the story and everything you know there's there's a story everywhere if i can only write as fast as as fast as like the stories that i see happening you know there's a story everywhere and in everything um and i feel i feel like um some of them move me to the page and some of them they just sort of sit with me and sometimes later in life they'll get moved to the page but some of them definitely stay with me and by that i'm not even just talking about um you know really really emotionally like heavy i'm just talking about really little things little little things like um a couple weeks ago i was at starbucks and the person in front of me paid for my order and i oh, wow i had a big order and so I was so deeply moved by that that I paid for the person behind me. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. And it just started, it just had a ripple effect. And I just started, you know, um, donating every other week now to um, the food bank. And, you know, just really being outside of my world, you know. And so that's something that I found, I found really interesting, how one small act of kindness changes so much. Um, so there's that. Something else I've been thinking about lately is, um, you know, how everybody here is so busy. Yes. Everybody in this country is so busy. And that's something I never encountered in Ghana. I never encountered that living in Accra. If I phoned somebody and said, hey, can you have dinner? Generally dinner, no. People usually eat dinner home. Yeah. But lunch? Yes. People had time for lunch. Yeah. People had time. And people had time for one another. And I never felt the sort of the sense of absence. But what's interesting to me is um, how uh, now we're in the middle of pandemic and especially when we're in lockdown and I would you know hear from somebody oh I'm just so busy and I thought doing what <laughs> like doing <laughs> what like what exactly are you doing that you're so yeah. busy but yeah. really like a frantic like oh I'm so busy and I realized part of it is that we create that you know mm -hmm. so that's something that I've been thinking a lot about so I get inspired by a lot of different things my mind just is like you know, on all the time. And I'm always thinking about stuff. But um, in terms of for this book, I love the Akashic series. I love the series. And I own most of the books in the series. And so I actually approached them and said, hey, you don't have any Africa at the time. They hadn't done any. And then, then came 
Um, I think uh, Lagos Noir was published while I was editing this. But at the time that I approached them, there weren't any African countries yet. And Which I find but, very surprising because, and thank you for approaching them and getting Accra on the map is very important because, again, it is it plays a tremendous role in Western development. <laughs> I think Africa. I don't think that I gave them any new ideas. I think it was just a matter of time and I think I was right on time because Johnny now is the time. Johnny Temple, who, um, Johnny Temple who runs Akashic, he's a he's a pretty brilliant guy. I'm sure he would have gotten around to um, Accra and everywhere else in Africa. So well, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it happened that I slipped in at the right time, yes. Yeah. Speaking about your writing, let's um, talk about your a bit more of your story because it is a <laughs> wonderful story. Um, when a man loves a woman, yes, that title alone <laughs> makes your heart stop. I took it from the song. Yeah, I know. It, make, it makes my heart stop. <laughs> um, how would you describe the story? Um. I would describe the story as a man who um, has everything, but is too selfish to realize it and is wants everything his way and doesn't realize that he has everything already. And so when he suffers a misfortune, um, uh, I guess I don't want to talk in 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 anything way. <laughs> a gentleman who well, it's about a man who has has um his prostate removed. He has prostate cancer, and he has his prostate removed, and um he is unable to perform sexually. Um, even though apparently with the specifically with the um with the uh, robotic removals, it spares a lot of the, the veins and the vessels. And mm -hmm. so you're never gonna be 100%, but with a lot of men, there is a way to, there is a future in terms of sexual function. But this man just is frustrated and he's had this incredibly romantic and sexual relationship with his wife where they are sexually compatible, have been from the beginning, always um, have been compatible in that way. And so he begins to define their relationship simply by that and think that because that is gone, she will go. And, you know, he has decided that she, you know, he cannot live seeing her with another man so rather than kill himself he's going to kill her <laughs> which, which brings me to my next question what was the influences behind the story where did you get this like what, what was the influence nanama like has like to get to that conclusion <laughs> To get to the conclusion of like the man must kill. Yeah, like where where did you? What was your influence? Where 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 how, where was the impetus from this for your you story? Know, I have a friend, not not a romantic friend. I, I have a friend 
who got a prostate um, removal and he just turned into the angriest, most bitter person I have ever met. And I thought, and I found that to be really interesting because I had at the same time that he had had his prostate removed, I'd had a hysterectomy. And I was deeply sad because I mean, you lose an organ. It's like, my gosh, I've come into this life with this piece of my body. I was hoping to leave with it, but you know, you become, you know, you definitely are saddened by that. But this guy became really brutally mean. <laughs> and so I just sort of was like, you know, this is really interesting to me. And especially because there's, you know, the, the, the thought of living in a world where for men, everything has been made society jokes about it but everything has been made to be very phallic centered it's like mm -hmm. everything is all about their 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 penises you know mm -hmm. and their sexual prowess and to have an illness that removes that from you how do you re how do you redefine yourself and your manhood how do you redefine yourself and your manhood and it's a much more powerful question than let's say for a woman because i went through the same process because so much of womanhood is really about oh i feel it in my womb oh this yeah, one. Yeah. Oh, then what happens when you don't have one anymore you know and so the question is how do you redefine yourself but then also if you're already in the midst of a 25 year relationship how do you define your relationship at that yeah. point yeah you know at what point does i mean what is intimacy now what is love now you know and these are all questions that um you know i would like to imagine come up in the story as i'm telling the story because um this man you know starts to become jealous of the women that, I mean, the men that, that his wife uh, is now friendly with and talks to. Of course, he has no reason to be jealous because she is fraternizing with those men to create a birthday party for him. <laughs> and, but how, but, but, but the duplicity also in the fact that in order to, you know, he believes that she is cheating on him, which further confirms his belief that she needs to die. You know? But this is what makes this so good, is that it, you look at the relationship, it, you look at a marriage at a later point in the life. That's what I found so wonderful. And how this man, his jealousy enrages him and it, change, it changes the whole dynamic of the marriage. But why is he, why is he jealous when he himself, yeah. when he himself has decided that in order to, to sort of test his ability to regain some of what he lost with the surgery, he goes to hookers. So that brings me to my next question, actually. <laughs> that brings me to my next question, because um, obviously you express 
how sexuality unfolds within a marriage. And this guy goes to a hooker to kind of like feel uh, masculine again. So, and you juxtapose that beautifully with the with his relationship with his wife. What would you say in is seen as the basis of masculinity in terms of Ghana? Because every single place um, accepts masculinity in very different ways. But what is seen as masculine within the Ghanaian context? Oh, well, I certainly think being virile is one, but I think that, I think that's earlier because I think that has to do with children and, and you know, um, being able to bear children. So I think that's one um, with a man showing that you can, you can father children. You can um, not father in terms of the emotional and the spiritual, but the, the physical that you mm-hmm. father children. Um, and I also think, I also think work, having work and being able to um, provide for your family, I think is a big one too. You know, I believe that men are seen as masculine mm-hmm. if they're able to do that. Yeah. I also, within your story, uh, there's, it's very, the way you express the, this couple coming back to Ghana which is a very common uh, thing that happens is, you know, you have Ghanaians that leave Ghana, go to Europe or the US, think that they're not gonna be there for that long, end up having children, being there for nearly 30 years in, in those countries, and then coming back home and almost having this kind of like naive idea where it's like, okay, we're gonna come back home and everything's gonna be fine and it's gonna be great like it was before, but you know, they themselves have changed in the time that they've lived in those countries and raised their children. Um, I feel like in the West, there's so many distractions that hide or emphasize problems in a marriage. And as someone like yourself who has traveled and lived in many places, when you return to Ghana, how do you feel this changes your relationships and I'm not even talking in terms of marital that's that's not what I'm saying in terms of like how you relate to people in Ghana and how you relate to people outside of Ghana when you're based there when you're there wow that's a great question I I feel very Ghanaian when I'm in Ghana and then I feel sometimes very American but then I feel the same here you know I feel very Ghanaian sometimes here in the U.S. and very American sometimes and I've learned to just negotiate things as I am you know um you know there are people in Ghana who will say oh you you, you're too American or you've gone Mm -hmm. gotten lost you know you've gone there and gotten lost and I'm just like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I'll, you know, dismiss that. I am who I am. And I think that a country like Ghana, you know, before I used to say something, before I would say, well, you know, we were in America when Ghana was needing remittances from abroad. Mm. There's a real rich history. You can't say to someone, you are not Ghanaian because you did not grow up here. You know, I am a part of this story. The story is larger than just the people who stayed on the soil. You know, the story is larger than that, which is why through all the governments, 
the diaspora has been a very important, the Ghanaian diaspora has been a very important part of the nation and its forward motion, you know? So I don't really, I feel like they're, you know, Accra, which is where I'm based when I'm in Ghana, Accra is such an international city. It is so, you know, it is so multicultural. You know, I remember I was on the phone with someone and I said, you know, look, I gotta go, I gotta get off the phone. I'm rushing to meet a bunch of friends for sushi. And she's like, in Africa? Yes, <laughs> we have sushi. <laughs> we do eat that. And I said, uh, yeah, are yeah. we supposed to have sushi here? We have Japanese people here too. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and I don't know what people in the Western world, what their image still is. Because I find that I find that a lot of it is racist and racial. Because I find that when my white male South African friend says that he is going to have sushi in his Cape Town, in his town of Cape Town, people don't kind of go, really? There in Africa? You know, but yeah. what I say it, it's it's it becomes you know, it becomes an issue. Um, you know, in putting together a crime noir, I also put together, I have some contributors who are um, like Eileen is originally from Ireland. She's yes. been living in Accra for almost 20 years. Um, so 20, yeah, 20 continuous years. Uh, Patrick Smith yes. he is an Englishman. Um, and he lives currently in Paris, has a home in Accra, but he's lived in Nigeria for many years. He's lived in Ghana for many years. And he is currently the um, uh, editor in chief of the Africa Report, which goes out to every African country and every, you know, every African country and every, um, head of state's uh, media room. So, you know, Africa is not, it's, it's not this monolith. It's not, and also what mentioning, when, once you mentioned the writers, what I found, which was very, uh, which stalled, installed a new sense of pride for me regarding Ghana was the use of uh, Twi, Ga, uh, there was a couple of Twi, Ga, and say what was Dagmani? Yeah, Dagmani. Yeah, and Dagmani. Um, you know, actually seeing it written mm -hmm. meant so much to me because I understand Twi like verbally. Yeah, I hear my mum. I was raised with my mum, my Ghanaian mother, and my Ghanaian father speaks to me in Twi, but I never saw it written. Yeah. So when I got the Accra Noir and I had to read the book, I was like, wow, okay, um, this is a new challenge. I mean, I could, I could, I know the sounds of the alphabet, but the words itself, that brought me closer to my family by going, reaching out to them and saying, how do I pronounce such words? And I think it's very much a beautiful thing to have that visually in the book as well because it indicates to people around the world that Ghana has its own language, like languages, like any other um, 
country in the world. I think there's this inherent idea that Ghana only speaks English. I mean, a lot of people that aren't even aware or have or have an understanding of Ghana assume that it speaks French. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. All the time, people be like, do you speak French? No, I do not. It was not colonized by the French. It was colonized by the English. That's so crazy. And, I find that so interesting that and, people and don't know that. And I was like, how are you going to tell me about some place that I was born? I mean, was that was an argument from an American person? Because that tends to happen a lot. Yeah, it was a white American person. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, what you remember, the, 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 the one day that you remember in high school, like geography or wherever you studied it, is supposed to trump my entire life. And what I know, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Some it, of that stuff. It really makes me laugh when that happens because um, I remember when I first came here with a name like Aniwa Buachi, uh, people were asking me, where did you learn how to speak English? And I found that so funny because um, I was raised in the UK, but also Ghanaians in particular are religious about education. Um, so most Ghanaians know how to speak perfect English anyway. Mm -hmm. But um, looking at the books, you said, you said that Ghana was very much a multicultural Accra, shall I say, is very much a multicultural city, which it is. And then instantly I thought of one of the stories, which was Labadi Sun Sunshine Bar by Billy McTurnan. Yeah. And, um, you know, it looks at foreigners in some way. This is a question. It looks whether the foreigners are taking advantage or assisting locals. I don't know whether you want to um, speak briefly about you know, I don't know. I don't know because a lot of West African countries deal with sexual tourism. Mm. And, you know, people come there and they either meet the love of their life and they marry them, but more than likely they have one night stands with um, men and women, you know. Um, with Ghana, it tends to be more men who come. With Senegal, it tends to be more women. The sexual tourism tends to mm. be women foreigners who come. Mm. Although it's there are women there in Ghana too. But what ends up happening is, um, you you know, some of these women. This is their. Um, this is the way that they they eat. They pay their rent. They they do certain things. The problem the problem that happens though is. Like I had a house help, you know, someone who yeah. was uh, um, a domestic and she was telling me that she had met a young man in Germany and that, you know, he was coming and he was going to take her to dinner and everything. And then, you know, he's going to, he, he, was, he was sending her gifts and he was going to take her to Germany. And I said, you know, this is, be very careful, <laughs> you know, because I thought, this guy doesn't know you. And there's a million and one women that he could get somewhere. You're going to end up in some sex traffic ring. He's gonna, you know. And so I moved back to the U.S. I don't know where she went mm. from there. But in the time that I was with her, she saw some signs that, you know, kind of said, okay, you're right. You know, I don't think this is safe. But I think there's, again, economy. You know, when you're in a tight economic situation, and I don't 
don't think it's any different from young women here who are in a tight economic situation and are trying to get to some middle class someplace, you know? I think the difference is that the class lines are drawn tighter here, mm. you know? I think it's more difficult to get into a fancy bar or a fancy club here to meet a celebrity or a businessman than it is there. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I think it's a smaller society, number one. And number two, you know, it co cloth costs how much? You can sew it yourself there and you can sew yourself a nice outfit. Here, you walk in there with your, you know, fast fashion, <laughs> you know. Someone's going to know. Someone will look at you and be like, what is that? People with their Gucci Poochie this are going to look at you and say, she just walked in here with this little Target outfit. Yeah, whereas in Ghana, like you said, there's so many entrepreneurs and the fashion, the tailor, the tailors, seamstress in Ghana are so impeccable that you're always walking in something that's one of a kind. Exactly. Couture. You're always wearing couture clothes in Ghana. So, you know, there are ways that enable you to um, slide in undetected, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people, their goal is, is, is not to harm anybody. Their goal is that they, they want a life because Ghana is very classist. You know, a lot of times people will say, where did your mom go to school? Where did your dad go to school? Where did the, you know? And so for some people, they're never going to be able to outrun the sins of their father, even if the only sins of their father are sins of poverty. In Chop Money by Nana Akia Hammond, there's something, she, there's a line that says nothing, nothing free in Ghana. One of her characters say nothing free in Ghana, yeah. which um, made me just think of that when you said um, they're having to outrun their father's uh, mistakes or, um, I mean, it's very extreme, isn't it? If you have no food, no income, then, you know, there's not really a socialist environment that will support you in Ghana, which is what makes these stories so very interesting is you find that all of the characters are finding ways to uplift themselves. And there brings into notion this African big man mentality. Um, I don't know whether you want to elaborate on, on what that is. Oh, I think the African big man is the same as the American big man, <laughs> especially now that, you know, the gulf between the haves and the have nots is so huge in this country. It is somebody who can afford to like hop into the Land Rover and have his watch and sit and eat his meal as people are shining his shoes or cleaning mm -hmm. up around him. You know, he's somebody who's made it. You know, he's somebody who's made it and people are, yes, boss, no boss, this boss, you know, and um, it's a real, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And some of them are just, some of them are just basic civil servants. Yeah. You know, and yeah. some of them are actually like the heads of things. And then they're the heads of organizations who 
like here, you'd never know. You could sit next to them and they're wearing, you know, jeans and a t-shirt and you never know that they were the head of an organization. There are some there that are like that, just like there are some here that are like that. So the whole sort of big man syndrome, it's, um, it's problematic, you know, it's problematic because those people make themselves targets and they want to be targets for emotion, for adulation, for, you know, all of these things, but then they also end up being targets for crime. I, I also do think though that in terms of, especially in particular with the stories within Accra and Noir and from what I've seen of Ghana, when you're, when you're of a working class, um, when you're working class, I do feel like you, there are people that band together to, to help you overcome difficulties. I mean, it takes a village, doesn't it? And that's beautifully expressed in, um, oh, I really don't want to butcher her name. Um, the boy who wasn't there. Eileen. That, say her name again. Eileen. Eileen, sorry, it's, it's Irish spelling. So <laughs> I'm always, I always forget that the B is silent. Yeah, no, the, the, the Irish spellings kind of get you. You're like, what was that again? <laughs> but the, Irish, the thing is, is that my name, how it's spelled, has silent like legally have spot has a silent ng so I, i'm always i have a very fondness of names that i'm like there's a silent letter in it great just like mine um <laughs> but um she expresses that like how a village has come together to deal with the situation of a dead body of a boy in their village mm-hmm. and when i read that story um th- that actually made me cry it really I had to put the book down for a bit and just have a good old cry because in some sense it was so, it's even making me so emotional now. It's so beautiful the way this village comes together to bury this boy. But yet on the flip side, all this boy needed was a real family to help him. That's all he needed. That his death could have been avoided by that. And I do feel that um, the working classes in Ghana do band together to kind of help each other more so than perhaps the middle classes in that sense. I don't know, what, what would you say? I think that the working class everywhere bands together because <laughs> I, think that, I think that, as I'm sure anybody who's ever been broke knows yeah. that a poor, people will give, poor people will give each other money before rich people will give poor people money. You know, it's like, you know, it's easier for me to get 20 bucks from somebody who can hardly spare that 20 bucks than it is to ask somebody with a lot of money to give me $20. Exactly. Um, so I think that there's a sense of we have to help each other. Mm-hmm. Or else nobody will help us. Yeah. Um, and I think with the middle class, there's a sense of, well, you or your middle class, you should have this. You have this, you know, mm-hmm. because even if you don't have it, there's a pretense that you do because everybody's trying to keep up with the Joneses or whatever. So there's the pretense that, oh, I've got it. I'm, you know, I'm together. So when people reach a certain class level, they don't want people to know that they might be struggling. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that there's that. And yes, I I do think that there's a sense of um, community, certainly. Certainly there's a sense of community, more so than I've found 
you know, um, in the Western world. In the Western world, we tend to live in these very sort of isolated, you know, um, units, you know, and I think that we're seeing how that is problematic now during a pandemic. Oh, for sure. 100%. Not, not, not having, not having anything that is a tie that binds, you know, because in so, insofar as your chosen family of friends or your blood family um, of, you know, relatives can get on your nerves. I mean, unless they are truly abusive, they can get on your nerves, but there are times when you're just like, wow, I'm really happy that they're around. Yeah. You know? um, and so I see that, you know, in, in Ghana, there's definitely that, especially among the poor, you know, um, people, even the way people live, a lot of the co compound houses and there's just not a lot of space. It's not like you've got acreage. I mean, yeah. people, people are right up on top of each other in many areas. Yeah. I do, I do feel like the hierarchy in Ghana is very interesting um, in the sense that, you know, you can have your, how can I put it? I feel like the police, for example, there's always a, in some sense, there's always a, a way around the police in Ghana. Um, which, <laughs> <laughs> as you know, I'm saying, there's always a way around uh, the police in Ghana, which, um, you know, in some of these stories, like for example, Chop Money um, by Nana Akria Hammond, you kind of see how the police navigate and how now uh, the hierarchy of the Kayes and the shop owner and then the police and, you know, and then you see that also um, with Moon Over a Brie with Kwame Dawes, like how the, how law gets taken into someone else's hands. And in, uh, also with Anna Bossman. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and yeah. Also with Anna Bossman. No, it's true. I mean, I've got two, like, really quick police stories. One, we were in a taxi. We were in a taxi and my daughter and I, and the guy was about to run a light. And I said, I said, I beg, there's a police officer right there. He goes, oh, don't mind him. <laughs> he just like waved his hand. He goes, oh, don't mind him. And now coming from living in the US where it's like, I see a police officer and I'm like, hand on wheel, okay, look, look at the, you know, I'm like trying to make sure I'm doing everything right so I don't get pulled over. That's like really hilarious. And then one time in Accra, I did get pulled over um, by a police officer. He was on the, on the side of the road and he like kind of flagged me down, like, you know, and then he said something about my tag or whatever. And then he said, let's go. And I said, let's go where? He was trying to open my door to like, let's go. I said, let's go where? He said, to the station. So I make, I write you a ticket. I said, you want me to take you to the station to write me a ticket? I don't think so. And I pulled off. <laughs> and so for days afterwards, I thought, I'm going to get a knock on the door. I'm going to get a summons in the mail. And when I asked my friend, she goes, nah. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's like hilarious, maybe a little problematic. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why 
Accra and in, 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 in bringing this to a close, maybe that's why Accra is a perfect place for noir stories is because, you know, you've got a certain level of lawlessness. Yes, yes. That creates a perfect setting for such diverse stories. Exactly. Um, so we do have to bring this to a close, but I just want to ask you two questions before we go. Okay. Um, one is, can you share with us something about the book that isn't in the blurb, that isn't in the introduction? I don't understand. I mean, what, what do you hope your readers take away from this book, basically? Oh, I hope that they take all of Accra away. I hope that they take the laughter from some of these stories away. And I hope they also take some of the tragedy away. And I, and, I, and I hope that they see themselves so much in these stories that they understand that, you know, Accra really is Los Angeles. It really is Shanghai. It really is Mexico City. I mean, Accra is Accra in terms of its culture and in terms of its history. But I think that people tend to put Africa in such a remove. They make it seem like, oh, Africa. I mean, even the way that it's it's said and it's spoken. And so I hope that these stories um, provide laughter, um, humanize uh, these people that are in the stories and um, the writers who are telling these stories. That's what I hope. Well, it was most certainly a pleasure to read Accra Noir. Um, and... Honestly, as someone who has been to so many cities in the world, there is not a city quite like Accra. I can honestly say that hand on heart. And I hope the readers um, enjoy reading the book. And hopefully when the pandemic's over, I'm sure there's gonna be a new wave of tourists entering Accra uh, from their um, interaction with Accra Noir. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thank, thank you Thank you also, Aniwa, for being the voice of Accra Noir in the audio. Thank you, no, thank you so much. My voice is not how you would hear it now, which is uh, very much as typical South London accent. So don't be alarmed when you hear the African voice, it's definitely me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both. Oh my gosh, wow. I feel like I have really traveled with you to Accra. I think you, you've really brought so much so many great anecdotes and details um, to our listeners. So thank you so much for this conversation. And Aniwa, thank you for your great questions. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. So before we go, I just wanted to um, see if there's anything else either of you would like to mention, any projects you're working on or, um, you know, further reading for those interested in stories about Accra? Oh, wow. No, <laughs> I, I'm working on a book and I, I'll, I'll, um, it's just a memoir and it's just, I don't really want to talk about it right now. It's a little in that, in that Fair enough. State. Fair enough. It's in that tender state. Is there, is there um, a place, do you have any, a site or social media in which people can kind of um, check out or follow your, your work, Nana Amadanko? Yes, um, dankwa.com, D-A-N-Q-U-A-H.com, and acranoir.com. Perfect. 
Now you said this was coming out the fourth, right? Yes, it is. Um, so if you're listening to this, it is the fourth of December. Yeah, no, because by then the acronoir.com will be up, but by now it ain't up. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, I'm working on a number of projects. Uh, nothing that I can legally say right now, but um, just all the projects that I'm going to be working on in the foreseeable future ties uh, the British experience, like the relationship between Britain and Africa. So I'm looking at that as someone who is children of Ghanaian immigrants. Um, and if you want to know any details about me, uh, my website is www.aniwabawachi.com. My handle is at aniwabawachi. I'm sure you'll see my name. I'm not going to spell it. I'm sure Skybooks, Sky Skylightbooks will, will kind of um, put that down somewhere where you can see. Yes. Yes, we will. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both again so much. Uh, it, it's it's really a pleasure to to get to travel with you today and hear about um, Ghana and these stories that you know I think we desperately need here in the U.S. and we are very myopic readers sometimes. Um, so I appreciate the work that you're doing to bring uh, African storytellers to us. So thank you. Um, all right. So I think without further ado, we'll say our goodbyes and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.